Psalm 135. With the Psalms of Ascent still kind of ringing in the air, still fresh on our minds, the idea is to keep going up. Amen? To reach that top step, but not then to head down and head home, as we talked about Sunday, not to say, okay, festival's over, the feast day is done, back to life as usual. Business as usual. No, it's to continue on up. To keep going with the Lord. To ascend even further. And so we come out of the Psalms of Ascent. And what's wonderful about the Psalms is they do crescendo. We have 15 to go here, and they just keep going up. Of these last 15 Psalms, 10 are just worship. Just songs of great praise. Five of them are going to deal with tribulation and hardship and distress. SOS Psalms, I call them. And we'll look at those next week. And it's interesting that they're placed right here because I do think as you go up, the enemy tends to want to send more difficulty. But we keep going. We just keep going. Now tonight with Psalm 135, we begin with a Mosaic Psalm. Not because Moses wrote it, but because of its content and style, this psalm is, is like a mosaic floor. If you've ever seen a mosaic, and there are several really cool floors that have been unearthed in Israel. When you go, you see um, archaeological digs in these, these floors. One in a place called uh, Sephoris, which means little bird. And it's a city that used to be the, kind of the capital of the Galilee. And in Sephoris, there in a synagogue, they unearthed after a great earthquake that, that happened Oh, after the time of Jesus, uh, the synagogue was buried. Well, they dug it up, and what they discovered in it was this floor with this mosaic in it that was absolutely beautiful. In another house, they discovered a mosaic that they call the Mona Lisa of the Galilee. Because, again, it's so beautiful, taking just little tile or pieces of glass and fitting them together in an artwork of a collage. And that's what tonight's psalm is. At least the first one, Psalm 135, it, it takes several verses and several passages as though they were pieces of glass or bits of, of tile and pieces them together in a new and fresh and beautiful collage of, of worship. Now you might know this in the margin. Uh, some of your Bibles may have some of these verses. I noticed some of these verses were not here in my Bible. But verses 1 to 2 echo Psalm 134. So that's where those are drawn from. The second half of verse 2 on into 3 recalls Psalm 116, verse 19. I'll just toss these out to you real quickly. If you want to jot them down, you feel free to do so. Verse 4 parallels Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. Verse 5 is companion to Psalm 95, verse 3. Verse 6 of the psalm repeats Psalm 115, verse 3. All right, verse 7 is identical to Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 13. Do you see what's happening here? The psalmist in writing this is going all over the scriptures and pulling out favorite verses, favorite lines, and putting them together in one song. It's very interesting that he chooses to do this, I believe, as all scripture, inspired by the Spirit of God. God saying, that one, and that one, and, and you want to pick this one here, put that one in there because it's going to complete the picture. And he continues to do this. Verses 8 through 12, we will hear again in Psalm 136. So they're drawn out of that psalm that's actually placed after this one, but may well have come before it. Verse 13 is a direct quote from Exodus chapter 3, verse 15. Verse 14 repeats Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 36. And then finally, verses 15 through 21, the rest of the psalm is an almost exact restatement of Psalm 115 that we just previously studied. 
So you put all of that together in the order in which I've just described it to you, and you have Psalm 135. Some might say the Holy Spirit repeats Himself. Why is that? Well, being the great teacher that He is, clearly there's something He wants us to hear again. And any time you see something repeated in Scripture, boy, that is not time to skip over it. It's time to pull back and say, why is this here again? What does Father want us to hear? What's important about this? Verse 1, praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Praise Him, O servants of the Lord. You who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. Now some believe this psalm was actually written as a springboard right off of Psalm 134. It's not a psalm of ascent, but it is, it's good to fill up the mind of someone who is ascending. And that's the idea. You, you cannot ascend, you cannot go up in your relationship with the Lord. You will not go up to meet Jesus Christ without praise on your lips. I mean, that's going to be the first thing we do when we see Jesus. It's not going to be, whoa, what a trip. That was cool. Or that was flying, man. That's not going to be it. It's going to be, praise the Lord. I mean, nothing but worship is going to pour out of our mouths. Verse 3, praise the Lord. For the Lord is good. Sing praises to His name, for it is lovely. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for Himself, Israel for His own possession. For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Now what just happened there in those few verses, verses 3, 4, and 5, is what I call 4 by 4 praise. Okay? 4 by 4 praise. Four reasons for which to praise the Lord. You'll note He uses the word for four times. So, 4x4 four four praise, and someone's car is going off. Right on. 4x4 four four praise. Just... There we go. <laughs> so, here are the four things, and, and walk these through with me. Number one, praise the Lord, for the Lord is good, verse 3. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. I mean, do I even need to explain that? Praise Him for He's good. He's just good. And sometimes it's just good to recognize and realize He's just good. The Lord is good. Psalm 119.68, you are good and you do good. Period. And this is critical, it's foundational to our understanding of who God is. Mark chapter 10 verse 17 tells us a man ran up to Jesus and knelt down before Him. And he asked Him, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one's good except God. Implying both that Jesus is good and Jesus is God. It's one of my favorite little passages. There are those nuggets of Scripture, those those moments when someone says something to Jesus or asks a question, and the way he responds is so much bigger than the words he uses. What do you call me good for? Unless, of course, you're implying that I am God, then go ahead, call me good. (laughs) And it is all good. I was thinking about this implication of Jesus being both good and being God, and God Himself being good, and the goodness of God. And I I recalled one of my favorite devotional songs when I was a kid going to camp. Ain't Jesus Good. I may have even shared it with you before. I don't think I've ever sung it for you, but it goes like this. Ain't Jesus good, don't you know? Ain't Jesus good, ain't it so ba-dum-bum-bum? Ain't Jesus good singing hallelujah. I just want to praise Him forever again. And you go again. So with me. Ain't Jesus good. Don't you know? Don't you know? Ain't Jesus good. Ain't it so? Ain't 
so pam 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 ain't Jesus good singing hallelujah hallelujah just want to praise him just want to praise him forever again and then you have to go again and then we could go all night I love that song because it just speaks truth ain't he good ain't he just good has he been good to you this week and do you recognize just the goodness of the Lord now it's important it's, it's joyful to say that It brings a smile to your face to think about His goodness. But the premise, while simple, is a defining factor of faith. Mm -hmm. And it's so important to get. Because I know He's good. I know good will come of whatever He does. Because I know He's good. No matter how bad my life might seem, I know He's going to make good of it. Because He's good. And if I'm following Him and I'm walking with Him, the end result is good. It has to be good because He's good. And sometimes we forget that in the, in the trials of life and in our struggles. We forget that God causes all things to work together for good. For those who love God, who are called according to His purpose. So keep that in mind. He's good inherently. Therefore, all He can do is ultimately good. Remember that. So praise the Lord for, for He's good. Number two, the second four in the 4 by 4 praise here. Praise the Lord for it is lovely. It is lovely. That's the second one there in verse 3. Sing praises to His name for it is lovely. Now the question you might ask is, what's lovely? His name or singing praises to His name? And the answer is both. I mean, it's not an either or. Sing praises to His name for it is lovely. I like the word for lovely here in the Hebrew, it's Naim. Naim. I, I saw this today and I, and I texted Cheryl, you're my little Naim. You know. She's like, what does this mean? I don't like when you throw Hebrew at me. What's fun is I can say some bad Hebrew words that Cheryl, she's not going to know. This is a good one. Lovely. Naim. Pleasant. It means sweet. Even, check this out, Melodious. Now that fits really well, does it not? Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing praises to His name, for it is lovely. It's a melodious name. It's hard not to sing when you even speak the name of Jesus. His name. I, I, don't, I don't get it. When, when people use the name of God or the name of Jesus profanely, I, I don't get it. Because it's a lovely name. It's a pleasant name. It's a beautiful name. It, it's a melodious name. And just to speak the name of Jesus is good. It's lovely. And the adjective again, it can go either way. It can either be His name that's lovely or it can be singing praises to His name that's lovely because you know that's true. We start to sing and it's just, oh, it's wonderful. It's pleasant just to sing praises to the Lord. And so I think Paul writes... Colossians 3.16 Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. How? With psalms and with hymns and with spiritual songs singing with thankfulness in your heart to God. Gang, that is not optional. Singing in worship is not optional. And I don't care if you have the worst voice on planet earth. Sing loud. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord. Okay? You can anyone can make a joyful noise. Praise the Lord. Yes. Good. Make a noise to him. Singing in our hearts to the Lord, singing to the Father. Now some might might say, well, see Rick, it does say, let the word richly dwell within you. Sing within your heart. <laughs> so I don't want to sing out loud. Trust me, God loves it. 
God loves it. Praise the Lord for He's good. Praise the Lord for it's lovely. His, his name is lovely and singing His name is lovely. Number three, praise the Lord for the Lord has chosen Jacob for Himself. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for Himself. This is quoting Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, where Moses said the following, You are a holy people to the Lord our God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Hebrew for His own possession. Great word. Note this. I didn't text this one to Cheryl. Segula. Segula means peculiar. Which is why I didn't text it to my wife. Peculiar. Segula. But but not just peculiar as in weird. It means peculiar as in a unique treasure. A peculiar treasure. Moses is saying to Israel, folks, do you understand what you mean to God? He has called you out of all the people in the world throughout history to be peculiar, special, unique, His own treasure. Out of the vast sea of humanity, He has called you to Himself. He's chosen you to be His segula. And what's marvelous is that we are His Segula as well. His peculiar people. Hannah's trying to figure out a lot of things right now in college and it's really cool going back and forth and having conversations with her and she was asking about the passage in Peter where Peter says, we're a royal priesthood, a people for God's own possession. And she texted me and said, now that's about Israel, right? And I said, no, that's about the church. She goes, well, isn't that replacement theology? (laughs) No, it's grafting in theology. We don't replace Israel, but we are grafted in with Israel. They are His peculiar people, but we, in the Lord, in Jesus, become peculiar as well, in a positive way. I mean, you know, I guess you could go to someone at work tomorrow and say, did you know I'm peculiar? And they'd probably go, "Uh (laughs) uh-huh. Yeah, we got that. (laughs) A peculiar people. Well, why should I praise Him for them? I mean, know that. Praise the Lord for He has chosen Jacob for Himself. I mean, when was the last time you were sitting in church and just said, Hallelujah, Lord, thank You for choosing Israel. I mean, normally we think about, thank You for choosing me. But this says, praise Him because He's chosen Jacob. Why should I? Because He chose Israel as His peculiar treasure. We have the choice to be His peculiar treasure as well. So praise the Lord. Had He not chosen them, the choice would not be there for us. But He chose them that we might make the choice to be His peculiar people as well. Titus 2.14 Paul says, He gave Himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession. A peculiar people. Zealous for good deeds. Four by four praise. Praise the Lord for He's good. Praise Him for His name is lovely and singing praises to His name is lovely. Praise Him for He has chosen Jacob for Himself. And fourthly, praise the Lord for the Lord is great above all gods. And note that. I know the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. Above all gods. Now, for the rest of the psalm, the the verses pulled together, this mosaic is there to extol the Lord's greatness contrasted with the fiction of idolatry. So the greatness of God we see now through the rest until then he'll turn around and in contrast he'll talk about the stupidity, the foolishness, the ridiculousness 
of idolatry. It's truth versus fiction, God versus idols. Verse 6 going on, and the rest proclaims what verse 5 is saying. So verse 6, Whatever the Lord pleases, He does, in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all the deeps. So you might ask the question, what does the great Lord above all gods do? And the answer is, whatever He wants. Right? He does whatever He pleases. He does. He has that right. He can do anything He wants. Why? Because He's the Lord. Because He's the only Lord. Because He's the God above all gods. Because He is the Lord. You know, one of the questions that comes around a lot, Les, I know you've heard this. I've heard it so many times over the years. And the question is, why does God fill in the blank? Why does God this? Why does God that? Why does God... And I've just heard it in so many different variations. Sometimes it's, why is God doing such and such in my life? Why does God do it that way? Why does God blank? Well, the answer is because He's God and He can do whatever He wants. Why does God make air for us to breathe? Because He can? (laughs) Because that's what He wanted to do? Why did God create it? Because He wanted to. Why did God set it up so that Jesus would have to die on the cross? Because He chose to do that? I mean, the simple answer for all these things that we get all wrapped around the axle about is, He's God. And we're not. Praise the Lord. He does what He wants to do. He does whatever He pleases. Deuteronomy 29.29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. There are things we will never get. There are things we will never understand. Secret things that God alone understands that if He tried to explain to us, we would just sit there drooling. Hmm. You know? We don't understand. We, we can't fathom the depths of what He knows, of what He understands, the secret things. Some things we'll know. This, this is something that I, I rejected earlier on in my faith, that there are some things God kept from us. I didn't like that idea. No, He tells us everything. He tells us everything we need to know. But there are some things, again, if he told us, it would just blow our minds. We wouldn't, we'd just stagger and walk off going, I don't know, I don't know. No idea what he's talking about. Well, it's because we're not God. Some things he knows. And by the way, that's why this frenetic chasing after knowledge that we talked about on Sunday will never satisfy us. Because there are things we will never be able to comprehend. There are things we will never know. We can pursue it and go after it, but we still are going to come up short of the full knowledge that God alone holds in His vast and eternal mind. He says, My thoughts, Isaiah 55, are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. That's just how it is. Well, that's not fair. Okay? Whoever said you and God had to be on fair and equal footing? That wouldn't be fair for the rest of us. You know, if you and God were equals, the rest of us would be saying, "Uh uh-uh, I don't want to see that happen. What we do know, what He has told us, the secret things that He has revealed to us, 
gang, it's everything we need to know. I like the way Peter put it, 2 Peter 1, verse 2, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. And so our pursuit is not trying to know all the things God knows. Our pursuit is simply trying to know God. Wanting to be in, again, relationship with Him. Verse 6, continuing on. Let's read a little bit further here. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. In heaven and in the earth, in the seas and all the deeps, He causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. You know, you, you drive by past lake, as I do almost every morning, and see the, the fog out on the lake. It's so cool. And I, I know you can explain it biologically or, or, or physiologically to me. I, I know there's a way to, to express why, you know, how the vapor comes up and all that. I, it's, you can tell me about it, I'm still going to go, I just think it's pretty. <laughs> it's just pretty. It's amazing to me. The vapors that He causes to ascend... He makes lightnings for the rain. He brings forth the wind from His treasuries. You know, Jesus said the wind blows wherever it pleases. You don't know where it comes from or where it's going. You hear the sound of it. He says, so it is with anyone who is born of the Spirit. Anyone have any idea what that means? If you're born of the Spirit, what basically means is you go where He goes. And you don't know where you're going. You don't even sometimes know where you've come from. But you're in the Holy Spirit and you just go with the flow. Amen. Go wherever He's leading. And what's great is wherever He's leading is the best place to be. You know, Wherever the Spirit is, that's where I want to be because that's a good place. So He brings forth wind from His treasuries. He smote the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and of beast. He sent signs and wonders into your midst, O Egypt, upon Pharaoh and all his servants. He smote many nations and slew mighty kings, Sihon, the king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, and all the kingdoms of Canaan. We, we talked about Sihon and Og. We looked at those guys and the conquest of Canaan. And he gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to Israel, his people. Now, think about this. What did the people of Israel do to gain their heritage? One word answer, very simple. Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. They didn't earn it. He gave it to them. They didn't earn it at all. They simply received it. That's about all you can give them credit for is they received it. Same as us. We receive grace. We don't earn it. We don't buy it. We just receive it. We receive His Spirit. You know, we, we don't impress Him such that He gives it to us. He doesn't pour out on us His Spirit because we have finally reached that level of righteousness where He feels like He can give His Spirit to us. He just gives it, we receive it. That's it. Now Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 10 tells us, It shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land which He swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities, Moses is saying to the people, cities which you did not build, and houses full of good things which you did not fill. Hewn cisterns, which you did not dig. Vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And you eat and are satisfied. Moses says, then watch yourself that you do not forget the Lord. See, what we forget as the people came into the land and were led by the Lord into the land is they were able to move into all of these places that were pre-built, pre-filled, pre-dug, pre-planted. Everything was there. 
just waiting for them. They didn't have to work the land to make it. It was ready for them when they came into it. But Moses says, be careful. When you come into that place, when He has given you your heritage, watch yourself that you do not forget the Lord. And see, that's the problem. When we focus on the work of our hands, rather than lifting up our hands in trust and in faith in the Lord, we suffer memory loss. We suffer memory loss. What I mean by that is the harder that we work with our hands, the more we forget that what we have, He gave us. I didn't earn this. I didn't slave to pull this together. I didn't achieve this. He gave it to me. The job that you have right now that pays the bills that you think you went to college for or or you worked hard to get, He gave it to you. The only reason you have it is because He said, Here, I'd like you to have this. But when we focus on our hands and our work, we suffer memory loss. First, we forget that He's our provider. And worse, we start to forget the Lord altogether. You know this is in the news constantly that jobs are one of the, if not the biggest issue in our country right now. It's a huge concern. It's a concern here in our fellowship. There are several of us, several here of us. I'm not, I have a job so far. Of course, if all of you lose your jobs, I probably will too. But there are people just searching and struggling for jobs. I have the answer. I wish Obama would just call me up. I could lay it out for him. You know, in fact, I'm thinking about emailing John Bonner when I get home tonight just saying, here's the answer, dude. Here's the answer to the jobs problem. People are now going on two straight years of unemployment. And the Obama administration is trying to figure out ways to increase that even more. States are going bankrupt right now because they can't afford to keep paying unemployment benefits, which I think is an oxymoron, but that's, that's not for tonight. Jobless claims hovering right there around 9.5% or so. And the answer to all of this is so simple. You know what it is? If Americans would get up in the morning and start the day by saying, Lord, how can I serve you in your kingdom today? The jobless problem would go away. Please don't just hear this as a spiritual, pastoral thing that I'm tossing out there. I'm talking absolute reality. Jesus said, and I probably quote it every time we gather, Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Seek first the kingdom. If our country would put the kingdom first, we wouldn't have a job problem. If you... Mark my words, and there may be some of you in here who have lost jobs who are trying to get jobs. Listen, God's prescription, not Pastor Rick's, God's prescription for this, put the kingdom first. He'll take care of the rest. He will. I just don't know if I can buy that, Rick. Okay. Then, Then struggle and search and work hard with your hands to try and get the job that is eluding you right now. But if you will seek the kingdom first and His righteousness, He will take care of the rest. He will provide it. I am absolutely, 100% unequivocally convinced of this truth. He will take care of it. Israel's heritage, gang. And Israel, remember, Old Testament things, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, are a picture for us that we might look at what happened and learn from it. Their entire heritage was not something earned. It was something given. That they might just walk right into it. 
That's the way God wants to be with His people. His provision is for anyone who simply remembers His name. Verse 13, Your name, O Lord, is everlasting. Your remembrance, O Lord, throughout all generations. What does that mean? Look at the verse again. Your name is everlasting. Your remembrance, O Lord, throughout all generations. Does that mean God has a good memory? I mean, is that saying that God remembers? No. Is it saying that God will be remembered? It's more than that. It's bigger than that. The psalmist here is quoting God Himself. The Lord said in Exodus 3.15, listen to this. God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. The word there, memorial name, Zechariah, is the same word that is used there in verse 13 for remembrance. The word remembrance there, you might note this in your Bibles, is literally memorial name. Your name, O Lord, is everlasting. Your memorial name, O Lord, throughout all generations. Zechariah. Now, Zechariah also, once in Scripture, is translated sent. Okay, memorial name, remembrance, mnemonic device, you might say. Uh, A name that is remembered. It also is translated sent in Hosea chapter 14, verse 7. Now, I'll read verse 1, Hosea 14. It says, O Israel, return to the Lord your God. For you have fallen by your iniquity. And then in verse 7 it says, They that dwell under His shadow shall return. They shall revive as the corn and grow as the vine. The scent, Zechariah, the scent thereof shall be as the wine of Lebanon. Hosea prophesies, you return to the Lord and you're going to smell like the wine of Lebanon. The scent of those who follow the Lord, that, that smell. What are you saying, Rick? I'm just saying the strong, strongest memory device we have of our five senses is not eyesight, it's not seeing, it's not hearing, it's not touch, it's not taste, it's smell. Your sense of smell is your strongest memory device. You know, you walk by and you smell some perfume that perhaps I, you know, I, I've mentioned before, White Shoulders was my grandmother's perfume. I can't smell that without seeing her instantaneously. I mean, she's right there. It's amazing. And that is the way God created us, but that's what His name is like. His name has a scent that is in and of itself. It brings to mind, it brings to remembrance the Lord. This picture is very deep here. In fact, look back in verse 3, all the way back to verse 3. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing praises to His name, for it is lovely. It's a pleasant name. It's Now we see a sweet smelling name as well. But what exactly is this memorial name? Listen closely. Let's take it a step further here. Exodus 3.15, God says, describing His name, He says, this is My name for all generations. This is My memorial name. Here it is. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. That's His name. He chose to take his glory and grandeur and his, his name, his literally His ineffable name, and I'll talk more about that in a bit. His name and attached it to the people of Israel. Such that He now isn't just the Lord, Yahweh, 
Now He's the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. That's My name. He says, I want to be remembered by that name. He has tied His name to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to Israel. And a large part, listen, a large part of why Israel still exists today is because they are a reminder of the name of God. To to recognize that Israel is a people that have been around since Abraham is to recognize the hand of God in this world still at work. It's to remember God. You cannot look at the nation of Israel today without acknowledging at least at some level there's been some providence in this people. And so God keeps Israel... Remember over and over through the Scriptures, God says, I'm not doing this for you. I'm doing it for the sake of my name. You are here. You're my people. And I'm blessing you and I promise you all these good things. But it's for my sake, not yours. And the truth is, Israel is a memory device of the Lord. And so when you think about Israel, you think of the Lord. When you look at Israel, you think of His faithfulness. When you see Israel, His goodness. And all these aspects of who God is present there as a reminder in the people of Israel. The name of God. He is a God who is good, whose name smells lovely, who chose Jacob as His peculiar people, and who is great above all gods. This memorial name of the Lord. Verse 14. For the Lord will judge His people and will have compassion on His servants. And so even right there, sandwiched between verse 12 and verse 14, we have verse 13, which I think is marvelous. Verse 12, saying, A heritage to Israel is people. Verse 14, The Lord will judge His people and have compassion on His servants. And then verse 13, right in the middle of that, is His name is a remembrance, a memory name. He is sandwiched around or within the people of Israel, even here in this passage. And the idea here is that God's faithfulness to Israel allows the world to come to recognize and remember God's great name. Now, this beautiful mosaic psalm now turns to the stark contrast, the shadow picture in the mosaic floor, if you will, as the loveliness of His name that we have begun to look at is now contrasted to the stupidity of idolatry. Verse 15. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths they do not speak, they have eyes but they do not see. They have ears but they do not hear, nor is there any breath at all in their mouths. Those who make them will be like them, yes, everyone who trusts in them. O house of Israel, bless the Lord. O house of Aaron, Bless the Lord. O house of Levi, bless the Lord. You who revere or fear the Lord, bless the Lord. Blessed be the Lord from Zion who dwells in Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. Now we studied this passage. Psalm 115. Again, verses 18 or 15 there all the way through the end is directly out of Psalm 115. And we noted at that time that you become like whatever you worship. You worship the work of your hands, you will become like the work of your hands. Idols, they're they're deaf, they're dumb, they're blind, they're lame, and if you worship the work of man's hands, you will become deaf, dumb, blind, and lame. In fact, you could say it's lame to worship anything that we do. It's lame to worship our own stuff. Now the atheist says, well, I don't worship idols, I don't worship anything. Yeah, you do. You worship yourself. That's what atheism is at its heart. 
the rejection of God and the elevation of the self as the highest being on the planet. Which is more stupid in my mind than idol worship because all you have to go, the only place you have to go really is in. (laughs) And it's gross in there. God says, worship me. Why does God say worship me? Because He needs affirmation? No. God says worship me because we need transformation. And we become like who we worship. As we worship the Lord, we become more like Him. And John says we, when we see Him, we will be like Him, for we will see Him as He is. And that's the idea. As we worship, God calls us to worship Him that we might be lifted up, that we might be changed and transformed and altered as we approach Him, as we ascend. We become like what we worship. Jesus quoted Isaiah speaking of Israel and He said the following, Matthew 13, 15, The heart of this people has become dull. And with their ears they scarcely hear and they have closed their eyes otherwise they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their heart and return and I would heal them. I, I thought after the people returned from Babylon that they were no longer idolatrous. Oh, they, they weren't idolatrous. But they were very focused on the work of their hands. They were very focused on what they could accomplish. They traded in idolatry for legalism, for how well they could keep the law. And they were proud of their keeping of the law, the Jewish leadership was. And Jesus says, it's making you blind, and it's making you lame. And there are a few things more lame today in the church than legalism. People who reject grace to walk in the strength of their accomplishment, even in the Lord, or in the things of the Lord. I don't walk in the strength of my accomplishment. I walk in grace. And by grace alone. Praise God. Now in Psalm 136, the psalmist takes history and he lays it over against eternity. Psalm 136 is what we call an antiphonal psalm. Antiphonal meaning that it required two Levitical choirs. And they would sing back and forth. One choir would sing one line of the psalm and the other choir would sing the next. And then back and forth, song line to line. It can also be sung responsively. The Levitical choir leader, the worship leader, could stand up and sing the line and then the people would answer back. So that's what we're going to do tonight. A little interactive Bible time together. I will read the first half of each verse. You get to read the second half. And trust me, it's easy. You don't have to work that hard at it. It's the same thing over and over 26 times. That's all you have to do. Okay? Let's try this. Verse 1. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. And that was marginally acceptable. Give thanks to the God of gods. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. To Him, and now, if we, if we have different translations, let's just go with His loving kindness is everlasting, okay? So if you don't have that, lean over to someone who has that. It's the New American Standard translation. We'll go with that, okay? Some say His grace is everlasting. Some, what other verses do you have? His love endures forever. Now, that's a good one. That even sings well in that song forever. But we're going to go, His loving kindness is everlasting. Why? Because the word loving kindness is not the word love. It's not just love that endures forever. It's loving kindness. It's that Hebrew word chesed, which is grace. It's His grace that endures forever. Grace speaks gang more than love. Grace the outflowing of love. God is love, but God gives grace. Okay? So, 
Let's go with that. His loving kindness is everlasting. Where are we? Verse 4. To Him who alone does great wonders. Amen. Okay, now, hold on right there. (laughs) There's something we've already heard a few times tonight, and you've heard it before in going through the Psalms and other passages of Scripture that is worth pausing about. And it's the phrase, above all gods. We know that our Lord is God above all gods, we read in Psalm 135. Here, in Psalm 136, He's called the God of gods, verse 2. The God of gods. Well, if there are truly no other gods, why is He called the God of gods? What's that about? You need to remember this section of the Psalms that we're in. We're in book 5. Remember that? There are five books in the Psalms, book 5. And it parallels which book of Torah? Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, fifth book. That was a gimme question. It parallels Deuteronomy. And in the book of Deuteronomy, remember the people of Israel have just come out of Egypt, which was an idolatrous country, big time. And what the Lord is doing, and you see this throughout His work with with young Israel, with the children of Israel, is He's pulling them out of this polytheistic background and He's replacing them into the monotheistic background of Abraham. Now He did the same thing with Abraham originally. He pulled him out of polytheism, multiple gods, paganism, and pulled him into monotheism, saying, Abraham, there's one God and it's me and you worship me. But now he's doing the same thing again with the people. And in Deuteronomy, in fact, let me give you a couple of verses here. Deuteronomy 4.33 Has any people heard the voice of God speaking from the midst of the fire as you have heard it and survived? Moses says. Or has a God tried to go take for himself a nation from within another nation by trials and signs and wonders and by war and by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm and by great terrors as the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. He's contrasting. You know, all these gods of Egypt have done nothing like your God has done. Deuteronomy 5.15 You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out of there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Deuteronomy 10.17 For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who does not show partiality. The point, gang, and what he's pulling them to is not that there are other gods. The point is that there are no other gods like our God. That He alone is unique. That He stands out. That He alone is mighty. That He alone is self-existent. That He alone is God. So when you see this phrase, God of gods, that's what that's about. That, that there, it, there's no comparison. That even if you were trying to elevate some other God in the world, as, as our world is doing, you know, trying to elevate other named gods, like, I'm not going to name any tonight, because there are no other gods. There's just one God. There's only one Lord. And He alone is Lord. And in fact, and we've seen this, any spiritual being that claims to be God, other than the one true God as expressed in the Bible, is nothing more than demonic. It's not even a farce. I'll go so far as to say some of these old gods of Israel, the Baals, the Asherah, they're real. Not real gods, but real demons. This is what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10.20, the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. 
And I don't want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You can't partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. There is a spiritual realm. There is a demonic realm. And people are deceived into believing in the tree god or the sun god or the water god or the moon god. The crescent moon god. Who in reality is not a god at all but a powerful deceiving demon. There's one God. And He is the God over all. One true God. Now, after declaring His absolute uniqueness in this psalm, the song divides into uh, four sections now, four testimonies of the one true God for Israel. And you might note this, verses 5-9 through now testify of creation. Creation testifies of the Lord. And verses 10-16, through the calling out of Egypt testifies that the Lord is the only God. So creation, the calling out of Egypt, then verse 17 down through verse 24, the conquest of Canaan testifies that God is God alone. And then finally, the last two verses are what I would call the conclusion for all humanity. The conclusion that God alone is God. Okay, let's, let's read through these again, beginning with this section on creation. Uh, verse 5. I've got my part, you've got yours. Ready to go? Yeah. Remember, His loving kindness is everlasting. That's what you're saying. <laughs> to, <laughs> to Him who made the heavens with skill. Everlasting. What is, you, if you want to say forever, it's okay. It'll be a little muddy and it's going to come out really bad on the recording, but no big deal. Okay. <laughs> Verse 6. To him who spread out the earth above the waters, his loving kindness everlasting. To him who made the great lights, the sun to rule by day, the moon and stars to rule by night. To him who smote the Egyptians in their firstborn. See, now the testimony moves from creation to the calling out of Egypt and brought Israel out from their midst. Verse 11. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm. To him who divided the Red Sea asunder. <laughs> that reminds me, that's funny. I, I remember when we were in, in high school, you know, you do cheers from the stands while your football team was playing football. And our favorite cheer was just a three word cheer Rip them asunder! We just love to say that, rip them asunder. So, anyway, verse 14. And made Israel to pass through the midst of it. But he overthrew Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea. Ah, you're doing your part so well. To him who led his people through the wilderness. Now we move to the testimony of the conquest of Canaan. To him who smote great kings. And slew mighty kings. Sihon, king of the Amorites. And Og, king of Bashan. Alright, keep it up with me. Don't lose it now. Don't lose steam. Come on, we're, we're crescendoing here. And he gave their land as a heritage. Even a heritage to Israel, his servant. Who remembered us in our low estate. 
and has rescued us from our adversaries. And here's the conclusion for all humanity who gives food to all flesh. Give thanks to the God of heaven for His loving kindness is everlasting. Okay, what do you think is the overarching theme of this psalm? Alright, you got it. Good. <laughs> is it possible to use up His loving kindness? No. It's everlasting. And that's the point. You cannot use up, you cannot exhaust the grace of God. You can't do it. And that's the point of the song. All these stories, the testimony of creation and the calling out of Egypt and the conquest of Canaan and the great conclusion for all humanity, it comes down to this. You you cannot use up God's grace. He doesn't get tired of it. You know, I as a parent, I confess to you And thank you for allowing me from time to time just to confess my faults as a parent. My grace gets used up. I was sitting there at the counter tonight looking over my notes on the computer and just thinking through some of these things and Naomi's talking a blue streak and I just said, I finally looked and said, Naomi, honey, daddy's ears hurt. They just hurt. Can you just not talk for just, just give me two minutes? And she's like, and I, I kid you not, ten seconds later, because my loving kindness is not everlasting. But God's is. God's is. You can't use it up. You cannot. You will never use it up. And, and this is so critical because there will never be a point in eternity where He runs out of grace. Oh, you know, it's been good for about 12,000 years, but, but you, John, I am done. I'm just done. Can you just stop talking? Like you ever have to tell John to stop talking. But, but my point is, it's everlasting. Romans 5, 20 and 21 tells us the law came in so the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that if sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The whole point of the law, Israel, God gave you the law to show you that His grace is bigger than your best intentions. And His grace is bigger than your worst failures. His loving kindness is everlasting. Because, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And that's why I say again and again, and let me just tell you, I am am finally in the place in my life coming to to the refreshment of grace, of recognizing, wow, it really is just about grace. It really is. I guessed at it several years ago. I thought possibly, but kept working hard, you know, to get it done just in case it wasn't grace. It is. It's just about His grace. I love this psalm. So we're going to move on. Psalm 137. Psalm 137 now is a post-exilic psalm. It's a psalm of the exiles that recalls their heartache in captivity. It's one of the most emotional and poignant of the psalms of the people of Israel longing for their home. It's amazing. It's huge in depth and meaning, and it contains one of the most difficult passages in all Scripture, especially because we've just been singing, His loving kindness is everlasting. His loving kindness is everlasting. And this 
psalm ends with a line of judgment that is as harsh as it gets in the Bible. Let's read it. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Upon the willows in the midst of it, we hung our harps. For there our captors demanded of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Oh, if I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget her skill. May my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. Remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom, the day of Jerusalem, who said, Raise it. Raise it to its very foundation. O daughter of Babylon, you devastated one. How blessed will be the one who repays you with the recompense with which you have repaid us. How blessed will be the one who seizes and dashes your little ones against the rock. Boy, (laughs) what do you do with that, Pastor? His loving kindness is everlasting. How blessed will be the one who seizes and dashes your little ones against the rock. How do you reconcile such a brutal passage with the God whose loving kindness is everlasting? Come back Sunday and we'll talk about that. Psalm 138. It's too good. It's too good. We just need more time than we have tonight to sit in Psalm 137. So we will do that. Psalm 138. Are you just sick of that, Spencer? We have lots of time. Hey, there you go. Psalm 138. We will come back and look at Psalm 137. Part, by the way, part of the reason I do that, it's not to, to, to try and tease you, you know, with a commercial for Sunday. I know you're going to be there. You guys are always there. But it's because those who only come on Sunday, there are certain psalms, I, just, I see them and I think, they can't miss this. They've got to hear this. I know you're going to. But there are a lot of people who come once a week, they come Sunday, and I want them to get it too. And this one is too critical for us just to do and, and, and keep to ourselves. So we're going to share it with the whole fellowship Sunday morning, and it's an important one. Psalm 138 is a psalm of David that continues to proclaim the everlasting loving kindness of the Lord, and it's been called a psalm of wholehearted praise. I will give thanks to you with all my heart. I will sing praises to you before the gods. There it is again. Talking about the false idols and the false religious systems. I will bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your loving kindness and your truth, or your grace and your truth. For you have magnified your word according to all your name. King James translates it this way. I will worship toward thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. For thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. That's, that's astounding. That's stunning. And is that accurate? Is that what it means? Does this mean God's word is to be elevated above even His name? There's a Hebrew preposition here. What's translated in the New American Standard as according to is translated in the King James as above and it's a single tiny little Hebrew word al, A-L, al. Above, according to, the word also means beside and again, it's just a preposition. 
So what is it? Is it that His Word is according to His name that it's been magnified? Does He magnify His Word above His name? Does He magnify His Word beside His name equally? What is it? We need to understand this, that, that both the Word of God and the name of God are not to be undermined and are not to be missed. Both the Word and the name are absolutely critical. But the issue here in in my question is the intent. What is the intent of the author? What is the intent of the Spirit in this verse? Now, I myself have used this verse in the past to say God has magnified His Word above His name. I've used this verse to say His Word is that huge. His Word is that significant, is that important that He would magnify it above His name. But as, as I looked and poured over this this week... I think there's something we need to understand better here. Is the psalmist declaring that God is more highly glorified or lifted up His Word, even the Scriptures, above His name? That's the question. Well, here's the deal. God's name, as I said earlier, is ineffable. The ineffable name. What does ineffable mean? It means indescribable. It literally means unutterable or unspeakable. Do you realize we cannot speak the name of God? We don't know what it really sounds like. Even to this day. We, we, we look at the, it's called the Tetragrammaton. That YHWH, or actually more literally in the Hebrew, the YHBH. And, and that's all we have is consonants. We don't know what vowel sounds were used when God spoke it to Moses, when Moses turned around and spoke it to the people of Israel and said, Yahweh sent me, or the Lord sent me, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, the God of your fathers, that's His name. We have never heard it. We don't know if we're uttering it right. Is it Jehovah? Is it Yav? Yahweh? Yahweh? We really don't know. It is unutterable. And you know this, Bible students, the Jews won't even say it. Especially Orthodox Jews. They won't even write it. They won't even write God. Do you realize that? They don't write G-O-D. They write G-D. Out of respect. Because they don't know what the vowel sounds were. They say Hashem in the Hebrew. The name. Rather than even speaking Lord or, or God or trying to pronounce as we so brashly do. Yahweh. Jehovah. This sweet memorial name of God is literally unspeakable. But listen, it is a sweet memorial name because, get this, the name declares the nature. The name declares the nature. Far more than than the names that we use and choose in our American culture, for the Jewish people, for the Hebrew, the name is the nature. The name speaks of the nature of the person. And so this is what God did. God comes before Moses. Remember Moses says, I want to see your glory. And the Lord says, it'd kill you. But I'll tell you what I'll do. You get in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand and I will pass by and you can see the trailing off of my glory. You see the backside of my glory, but if you saw my glory head on, you'd die. And I still have a few things I need you to do. So, this is what happened. Exodus 34, verse 6. The Lord passed by in front of Moses and proclaimed. Here he he goes. The Lord. We don't know what he said. We don't know how it sounded, but Yahweh, the Y-H-V-H. The Lord. The Lord God. Compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. 
yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. That's the name. That's the name of God. What do you mean? That's the nature. And God proclaimed His name to Moses, but had to couple it with the proclamation of His nature. So that when we think of God, when we think of Hashem, the name, we don't just think of a moniker, we think of the nature. Anytime you see Lord in those small caps in your Bible, that's Yahweh, it's those four letters, anytime you see that, what the Lord would have us recognize and consider is not the title, is it, Hello, my name is God. Not that. No. The nature. The nature. The nature. The name speaks the nature. And His nature is loving kindness. And His nature is grace. What about that part about visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation? You remember we've talked about this? It doesn't mean that God is punishing to the third and fourth generation. It means God is visiting the third and fourth generation to see, are they open to Me? Or are they going in the same simple direction as their parents? In other words, His grace is so rich that He continues to visit every generation with the same opportunity to be saved. The same opportunity to receive His grace if they should so choose. The name. Now stick with me. We're almost done here. When it comes to which is higher, the Word or the name, you've magnified your Word according to your name, or you've magnified your Word above all your name, which which one is? this? We've got to understand that the Word flows from the nature. I've talked to people who've tried to separate this out. I've tried to separate this out, and you can't do it. You cannot separate out the Word of God from the name or the nature of God. Because the Word of God flows from the nature of God. It's it's as silly as me saying, yeah, I got a love letter from my wife, and uh, boy, I'll tell you what, I'd love to see her, but I really want to read the letter again. What? She's great, but when I want to really be around her, I open the letter. And I read the letter. And again and again, and I'm, I'm subscribing to the letter. That's legalism. It's not love. His Word is magnified because it flows from His nature. I love this Word because I love Him. And because, again, it draws me closer to Him. You know, no doubt you've heard on the radio or on the TV politicians uh, bandied about in the media. And the media love to play recordings of things politicians have said and then compare them to the things politicians are doing. And it happens on both sides of the aisle, and we see this happening all the time. Oh, listen to this. I hear sound bites. I have several sound bites you need to listen to that President Obama said, and then we're going to compare that now to what he's saying. And they go back and forth. They did the same thing with Bush. They did the same thing with Clinton. They did the same thing with Bush before him. You know, it's, we're going to take these sound bites and compare. Listen, let me, let me just make it easy for you. Politicians lie. They do. And even the good ones are going to spin things to their advantage because their job is to be a politician. They're trying to keep a job. Now, I happen to have certain presidents that I respect more than others. We won't get into that. But all of them spin the truth. Which the Bible calls lying. You know, there's no such word as spinning the truth in, in Scripture. It's just lying. They all lie. Titus 1-2 tells us God cannot lie. It's His nature. 
He can't do it. When the Bible tells us in 1 John, God is love. It's His nature. He cannot be other than that. He can't lie. He is love. He is light. The Bible tells us He is holy. And we start to think about when He says the Lord, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, that's His name. That's His nature. That's who He is. And so the Word without the nature of God. Now listen. The Word without the nature is hard to understand. How blessed will be the one who seizes and dashes your little ones against the rock. I don't get that. Of course not. Outside of the nature of God. When you understand the nature of God, you will view that verse differently. And again, we'll talk about that on Sunday. It is completely different when you're looking at the nature. When the Word flows from the nature of God. Speaking of who He is. The Word... Without the nature of God, it's hard to understand at best. At worst, the Word can be twisted even against the will and intent of God. Have you ever seen the Bible misquoted or misused in a way that did not glorify and honor God? Let me see a show of hands. See? But but it's the Word of God. How is that possible? Because the nature of God is not considered. Satan did not consider the nature of God when he tempted Eve in the garden. He twisted the Word of God at that time. He did not consider the nature of God when He twisted it trying to tempt Jesus in the wilderness. He tweaked it. He spun it to try and make it go the direction He wanted. He took it away from the nature. But you can't do that. You can't take the Word away from the nature because the Word flows from the nature of God. So which is higher? The name or the Word? It's a nonsensical question. It doesn't matter. Because the Word flows from who God is. And the Word is here to draw us to who God is. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 16 tells us that men will swear by one greater than themselves and with them an oath is given as confirmation to the end of every dispute. In the same way God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of His purpose interposed with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. Did you get that? Even reading that before your own eyes it's kind of one of those huh? I'm not sure I understood what he just said. What he's saying here is that God God swore an oath. And what men will do is they'll swear an oath. I'll say, you know, um, I, I, I promise you, to my wife, I promise you I will be faithful all our life, so help me God. What am I doing? I'm swearing an oath, and I'm swearing on something higher, someone higher than myself. That's where that whole phrase, swear to God, came from. It, unfortunately, again, is more profane than anything today. But men will swear on something higher than themselves to confirm their word. God can't do that. So God swore on Himself. God gives the promise, and then He swears on Himself to keep the promise. God gives His Word, and then He confirms it by His nature. His Word and His nature. Am I making sense to you all, or is it too late? We're good? Okay. Alright. He speaks, in other words, from who He is, which is why His Word is perfect, because He is perfect. You've magnified your word according to all your name. 
Now, as, by the way, as far as what to call God, as, what, as far as what His name is, you know what Jesus said to call Him? Father. Just call Him Father. Don't struggle to pronounce Yahweh. Don't write G-D. Just say Father. Paul takes it a step wilder than that and says Abba. We cry out Abba, Father, Daddy. And, and it's marvelous that, that, that the same God with the ineffable name before the Hebrew people now comes before us and says, just call me Dad. That's, that's, that's good. Don't worry about the name thing. It'd probably freak us out if we heard it anyway. Just call me Father. And Jesus said in Matthew seven eleven, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask Him? And Luke adds this, how much will your Father give His Spirit to those who ask? Verse 3, On the day I called, you answered me. You made me bold with strength in my soul. And by the way, this is David writing, All the kings of the earth will give thanks to you, O Lord, when they have heard the words of your mouth. And they will sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. For though the Lord is exalted, yet He regards the lowly, but the haughty, He knows from afar. That's good news. It's good news for the little guy who will never run a touchdown in the Super Bowl. God still regards us. He's not waiting for that shining, glorious moment. It's it's good news for those of us who will never perform at halftime. You know, I was so disappointed. I got the message on my answering machine at home from the Super Bowl committee to have the bridge worship team play at halftime, and I missed the message, and it was too late. He loves the little guy. We, you know, he loves the person who will never have the opportunity to misquote the national anthem. Yeah. Like Christina Aguilera did this last Sunday. God regards the lowly. He's not looking for the impressive. He regards the lowly. I just, I just love that. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you will revive me. You will stretch forth your hand against the wrath of my enemies and your right hand will save me. And he says, this is amazing, the Lord will accomplish what concerns me. Two ways to recognize this game. The Lord will accomplish what concerns me. David is writing that, and David knows the prophecy to him that God would build him a house, that God would bring someone a seed of his line and set him on the throne. David is recognizing here Jesus Christ. That God will accomplish what concerns me. Well, what concerns you, David? The throne. And my offspring. And the promise of an eternal throne and Messiah seated on that throne. That's what concerned David, and that's what God will perform. The other way to look at it, gang, is just that it doesn't get more personal than this. That with you and with me, we can sing this. The Lord will accomplish what concerns me. Paul said in Philippians 1.6, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Are your concerns his concerns? Make it so. Make it so. Make your concerns his concerns. That the Lord might accomplish what concerns you. Your loving kindness, O Lord, there it is again, is everlasting. Do not forsake the works of your hands. How can we really trust the Lord? He has a memorial name. He has a track record that is thousands of years old. 
a track record, if you will, that he has a people. He has a track record with persons. And I'll tell you personally, he has a track record with me. How can I trust the Lord? Because at 46 years old, I recognize his faithfulness more greatly now than 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. I am more absolutely convinced of his faithfulness and trustworthiness now than I ever was before. Those of you who are young, kids, hear me on that. Walk with the Lord and you will be more sure that He is exactly who He said He was when you're 40. Hopefully you're not, we're not going to be around here that long. But if you know, the Lord waits, when some of you younger ones are older, you will be able to say, Wow, He is faithful. He has proven it time and time again. And Hebrews 13.8, one of my favorite verses, tells us, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. He has a name. And He never goes back on His word. Praise the Lord.